This afternoon we start with Michael uh, Davis speaking on the attempts at union between the Roman Catholic and Anglican churches, which are known by the, uh, that strange acronym, thank you, <coughs> ARCHIC, which is the most... <laughs> which is the most inoffensive pronunciation of it, which I can arrive at. Now, I think enough of, of us have assembled now for me to shout out and to hand you over to uh, Michael Davis, author of many books and uncountable articles on this theme, <clears throat> Mr. Michael Davis. Thank you very much, Bernard. I remember the last time I came here, uh, I said to everybody, I know this is the worst time of any conference, about two o'clock in the afternoon. And if you start feeling sleepy and doze off, don't be in the least bit embarrassed. I won't hold it against anyone. Uh, yes, well, perhaps the coffee will help. Perhaps it should have been black. Well, I'm going to call my talk this afternoon neither hot nor cold. You'll see why quite soon. And I'd like to begin by expressing my firm conviction that it would be a gain to this country were it vastly more superstitious, more bigoted, more gloomy, more fierce in its religion than at present it shows itself to be. I'm sure that everyone present at this conference came with the knowledge that they would not be hearing cosy liberal ecumenical platitudes from the speakers but I doubt whether anyone actually expected to hear a plea for more bigotry. If this plea surprises you, you will be even more surprised to learn that the statement I made was not my own, but it was taken from a sermon delivered by John Henry Newman while he was still an Anglican. It was entitled On the Religion of the Day. Newman did not think much of the religion of his day. What he would have thought of the religion of our day, I hate to think. Please listen to a short passage from this sermon, which immediately precedes the plea for more bigotry, which I have just cited. What is the world's religion now? It has taken the brighter side of the gospel, its tidings of comfort, its precepts of love, all darker, deeper views of man's condition and prospects being comparatively forgotten. This is the religion natural to a civilized age, and well has Satan dressed and completed it, into an idol of the truth. Our manners are courteous. We avoid giving pain or offence. Religion is pleasant and easy. Benevolence is the chief virtue. Intolerance, bigotry, excessive zeal are the first of sins. It includes no true fear of God, no fervent zeal for his honour, no deep hatred of sin, no horror at the sight of sinners, no indignation and compassion at the blasphemies of heretics no jealous adherence to doctrinal truth, and therefore is neither hot nor cold, but, in scripture language, lukewarm. I would like to quote you another passage on the subject of those who are lukewarm. Scripture language. I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. I remember very vividly, despite the fact that it must have happened ten or more years ago, a TV interview with an Anglican cleric on the eve of the first vote on Anglican Methodist unity by the Anglican Synod. 
The interviewer asked how this cleric could expect a favourable vote when there were Anglican and Methodist doctrines which were clearly incompatible. He replied, and this reply made a very deep impression upon me, if these doctrines separate us, then they will have to go. I suppose that as a Catholic, I should have maintained the stance of a dispassionate, neutral observer, but I couldn't. You were neither hot nor cold, I thought. What sort of a Christian can you be? We are all Christians here today. We are all baptized, and the bond of baptism which binds us together is far stronger than the doctrinal differences which keep us apart. When we are baptized, we die to sin and rise again with our blessed Lord. We emerge from the waters as followers of Jesus Christ who said, If you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. There are many ways of defining a Christian. There are many characteristics which every good Christian should manifest in his life. One of them, perhaps the most important of them, is the love of the truth. A Christian is a person to whom truth matters. The profession of Christianity is incompatible with indifference to truth. The reason that Christianity is in the state it is today is because of the almost total disregard shown by so many Christians for truth. The theme of my talk is that we have a duty to seek out the truth and cling to it, cost what it may, lest on that dreadful day of judgment our Saviour, who will also be our judge, should spew us out of his mouth because we are neither hot nor cold. The theme of my talk is then that truth matters. I am a Catholic. I believe that the Catholic Church has the truth and that, ipso facto, those who contradict the teaching of the Catholic Church are in error. But it is not my purpose here to argue or to prove this. All I wish to do is to uphold what Newman termed the dogmatic principle. We will certainly differ on the content of Christian dogma, but I am certain that we will all agree on the principle that dogma does matter. Dogma can be explained most simply as a truth which has come to us from heaven, something which God has revealed. These truths are revealed to us immediately by God, and hence demand our total and unconditional assent, even if we cannot understand them. We believe in them as an act of faith. No one here, I'm sure, could really say that they understood the doctrine of the Holy Trinity or the fact that God is uncreated, that we believe these things. In opposition to the spirit of dogmatism, we have that of liberalism. It was opposition to this anti-dogmatic spirit of religious liberalism that was the unifying force in Newman's life, both as an Anglican and as a Catholic. In 1879, when he was made a cardinal, he stated, To one great mischief I have from the first opposed myself. For 30, 40, 50 years I have resisted to the best of my powers the spirit of liberalism in religion. Never did Holy Church need champions against it more sorely than now, when, alas, it is an error overspreading as a snare the whole earth. Liberalism in religion is the doctrine that there is no positive truth in religion, but that one creed is as good as another. It is inconsistent with the recognition of any religion as true. It teaches that all are to be tolerated, for all are matters of opinion. Revealed religion is not a truth, but a sentiment and a taste, and it is the right of each individual to make it say 
just what strikes his fancy. In his essay on the development of Christian doctrine, he showed clearly that religious indifferentism lies at the basis of liberalism. And I quote, The truth, that truth and falsehood in religion are but matters of opinion, that one doctrine is as good as another, that the governor of the world does not intend that we should gain the truth, that there is no truth, that we are not more acceptable to God by believing this than by believing that, that no one is answerable for his opinions, that they are a matter of necessity or accident, that it is enough if we sincerely hold what we profess, that our merit lies in seeking, not in possessing, that it is a duty to follow what seems to us true without a fear lest it should not be true, that it may be a gain to succeed and can be no harm to fail, that we may take up and lay down opinions at pleasure, that belief belongs to the mere intellect, not to the heart also, that we may safely trust to ourselves in matters of faith and need no other guide. This is the principle of philosophies and heresies, which is very weakness. Against this liberal, anti-dogmatical mentality, Newman opposed what he called the dogmatical principle, which he describes thus, that there is a truth then, that there is one truth, that religious error is in itself of an immoral nature, that its maintainers, unless involuntarily such, are guilty in maintaining it, that it is to be dreaded, that truth and falsehood are set before us for the trial of our hearts, that our choice is an awful giving forth of lots on which salvation or rejection is inscribed. This, then, is what the conflict between orthodoxy and liberalism is ultimately about, an awful giving forth of lots on which salvation or rejection is inscribed. But the opponents of liberalism were under a great disadvantage, as Newman realized only too well. Religious liberalism conformed to the spirit of his age, and even more to that of ours, at least in the Western democracies. Liberalism epitomized tolerance, and its opponents, intolerance. Intolerance then, as now, was seen by society at large as a great, perhaps the great evil. There could be no doubt that religious indifferentism is the spirit which now pervades the ecumenical movement, and it is bitterly ironic that many of those termed ecumaniacs by the late Cardinal Heenan claim Newman as their patron and mentor. It seems legitimate to wonder if they have ever actually read any of his writings. Newman was not prepared to tolerate error. He did not, of course, wish for a return to the days when religious differences were settled by the rack, the rope, or burning at the stake. But he insisted that Christians should make it absolutely clear that deviations from orthodoxy must be repudiated publicly, forcefully, and inflexibly, because he that would be saved must think thus, and not otherwise. Where our eternal salvation is concerned, there can be no room for compromise. Newman insisted upon what can be called dogmatic intolerance, and this dogmatic intolerance is demanded from all who are dedicated to the truth. He was prepared to uphold the principle, even though it was diametrically opposed to the spirit of his age. Hence the claim made at the beginning of my talk that even bigotry is preferable to indifference to truth, to lukewarm Christianity. 
I hope that the Anglicans here today will not be offended if I point out that the anti-dogmatic principle condemned by Newman, the liberalism which he so denounced, was found principally within the Church of England at that time. Those who are familiar with his life will know the anguish he felt at this indifference to truth within the religion of which he was an ordained minister and which he certainly believed to be true. At that time, no such indifference to truth was displayed by the generality of Catholics and nonconformists. But my word, in this country, Catholic ecumenists are doing their utmost to make up for lost time. So are their nonconformist counterparts. You might have a hundred years start on us, our Catholic ecumenists can boast, but when it comes to indifference to the truth now, we are centuries ahead of you. In his book, Apologia Pro Vita Sua, Newman cited the prevailing attitude within the Anglican Communion in about 1840. In the present day, mistiness is the mother of wisdom. A man who can set down half a dozen general propositions which escape from destroying one another only by being diluted into truisms, who can hold the balance between opposites so skillfully as to do without fulcrum or beam, who never enunciates a truth without guarding himself against being supposed to exclude the contradictory, who holds that scripture is the only authority, yet that the church is to be deferred to, that faith only justifies, yet that it does not justify without works, that grace does not depend upon the sacraments, yet it is not given without them, that bishops are a divine ordinance, yet those who have them not are in the same religious condition as those who have, this is your safe man and the hope of the church. This is what the church is said to want. Not party men, but sensible, temperate, sober, well-judging persons to guide it through the channel of no meaning between the skilla and charybdis of I and no. This description could be applied without changing a word to the ecumenical establishment which transcends denominational barriers today. It is reasonable to claim in fact, that this ecumenical establishment constitutes a new denomination, one which I'm sure all of us here, whatever our differences, would repudiate as heretical. Almost every heresy results from the exaggerated emphasis of some Christian truth. The basic error of the ecumenical heresy is to stress charity, caritas, at the expense of truth, veritas, now, charity attained at the expense of truth is not Christian charity, and unity expressed at the cost of truth is not Christian unity. The motivation of those who succumb to the ecumenical heresy is not necessarily malicious. The Anglican Roman Catholic International Commission, the notorious Archic, was set up jointly by Pope Paul VI and Dr. Michael Ramsey in 1968. Anglican and Catholic theologians were assigned the task of explaining their own beliefs and examining those of the other communion and seeing to what extent agreement was possible and to what extent it was not. The members of this commission have been closeted together in a series of historic and exotic venues, Malta, Windsor, Venice, Canterbury, Salisbury. The expense involved has been astronomical and the ecumenical significance of their agreements can scarcely be exaggerated, particularly the significance of a failure to agree, or in the event of an agreement, a refusal by the Vatican or the Anglican authorities to endorse their conclusions. In either case, 
What Archic would consider as ecumenical progress since the Second Vatican Council would be totally nullified, and the hope of eventual unity would be far less than had the Archic discussions never taken place. I do not propose making any judgment concerning the Anglican members of the Commission. It would be impertinent of me to do so. I will confine myself to the Catholic delegates, and my judgment in their respect concurs with fully with that of an English Catholic theologian, Father Edward Holloway, who accused them of a betrayal of the Catholic faith, and hence also a betrayal to our Anglican brothers of that sincere portrayal of the essential Eucharistic faith of the Roman Catholic Church, which the Catholic delegates, and especially the bishops concerned, were accredited to present. Strong words, but amply justified and absolutely accurate. This can be demonstrated simply by discovering what the Catholic Church teaches on the three subjects discussed by Archic, the Eucharist, ministry, and authority, and then seeing to what extent it is reflected in the agreed statements. In not one instance where Catholic and Anglican theology differ is the Catholic position included in the statements without ambiguity. What went wrong? This is not difficult to discover. The answer is both sad and simple. The Catholic delegates eventually became so obsessed with reaching agreement, not agreement in the truth, but agreement at any price, that they were willing to pay the price of ambiguity. Cardinal Newman, an unrivaled authority on the Arians, noted the extent to which they won support by drawing up creeds using vague, ambiguous language. The Catholic members of Archic followed their example. I am not attributing malice to them. No one engaged in important negotiations likes to admit failure to agree. Bishop Alan Clark, the Catholic co-chairman of the Commission, considers himself to have been given a brief to reach agreement with the Anglicans, and so he reached it, rather like an ecclesiastical chamberlain waving an agreed statement and crying out, Unity in our time. A minute ago or so ago, I said to you that in not a single instance where Catholic and Anglican teaching differ on the subjects discussed by Archic can Catholic teaching be found to stated in the agreements without ambiguity. This may appear a very sweeping statement. It is. I have made it in a number of Catholic journals since these statements began appearing in 1972, and on no occasion has any attempt been made to refute it. The members of Archic claim that they welcome criticism. This is untrue. On the Catholic side, at least, every effort is made to suppress any criticism, and where it cannot be suppressed, it is ignored. And why has my allegation not been refuted, and I am by no means alone in making it? The answer is because it is irrefutable. I could go point by point through every important article of Catholic belief on the Eucharist, ministry, and authority, and challenge anyone present to find that teaching set out clearly in the agreed statements. I have them here. But I will not do that. I would take up the rest of this conference if I did. I will just give you a few examples. I will begin with Catholic teaching on the real presence of our Lord Jesus Christ in the Eucharist. I'm not asking the Protestants here to believe this teaching. Obviously, I'd be glad if they did, and I'm sorry that they don't. But all I am asking you to do is to believe that this is what the Catholic Church teaches. I'm going to quote you a canon of the Council of Trent, 
Catholics must believe that this canon is infallible and irreformable. Here is what it says. If anyone saith that in the Holy Sacrament of the Eucharist, Christ, the only begotten Son of God, is not to be adored with the worship, even external, of Latria, and is, consequently, neither to be venerated with a special festive solemnity, nor to be solemnly borne about in processions, according to the laudable and universal right and custom of Holy Church, or is not to be proposed publicly to the people to be adored, and that the adorers thereof are idolaters, let him be anathema. The term latra, in case anyone isn't familiar with it, it's a technical term reserved for the worship, which we're only allowed to offer to God, and Catholics are commanded to offer that worship to the Blessed Sacrament. Contrast this with the doctrine contained in the Black Rubric, added to the Anglican Prayer Book of 1552. It was omitted in the 1559 version, was restored in 1662, and is still there today with what the Anglican historian J.T. Tomlinson describes as a few mainly verbal alterations. This is the text of the rubric, the, the original one. Lest yet the same kneeling might be thought or taken otherwise, we do declare that it is not meant thereby that any adoration is done or ought to be done either unto the sacramental bread or wine there bodily received or unto any real and essential presence there being of Christ's natural flesh and blood. For as concerning the sacramental bread and wine, they remain still in their very natural substances and therefore may not be adored for that were idolatry to be abhorred by all faithful Christians. And as concerning the natural body and blood of our Saviour Christ, they are in heaven and not here. For it is against the truth of Christ's true natural body to be in more places than in one at one time. Ladies and gentlemen, what the members of ARCIC wishes to believe is that the Council of Trent and the Black Rubric are saying precisely the same thing in different terms. They claim that Catholics and Anglicans should be able to recognize their own faith in the agreed statements. Well, perhaps the Anglicans who've read them can recognize the black rubric, but I certainly can't recognize Canon 5 of the 13th session of the Council of Trent. To put it briefly, the Council of Trent teaches that the Blessed Sacrament is God and must be offered divine worship. This is the official teaching of the Church, which has been reiterated on countless occasions since Trent, and is the teaching of Vatican II. It was the teaching of Pope Paul VI, and it is the teaching of Pope John Paul II. It is stated clearly in the preface to the new Missal. But the Black Rubric and the 39 Articles state quite specifically that the Eucharist is not God and must not be adored. Trent condemns those who allege that adoration of the Eucharist is idolatry. The Rubric states that adoration of the Rubric is idolatry, to be abhorred by all faithful Christians. Now the question I would like to put to you is are these statements saying the same thing? Was the entire Reformation a matter of semantics? When Cranmer died at the stake, when St. Edmund Campion was hung, drawn and quartered, were they simply the victims of semantic confusion? Ladies and gentlemen, I submit to you that they were not. Cranmer preferred to die rather than admit that we should worship the Blessed Sacrament. St. Edmund Campion preferred to die rather than admit that we should not. It is an insult to both of them to claim that they both believe the same thing. It is an insult to us to tell us that they did. 
I know that evangelical Anglicans are not happy with the agreed statements, but I can assure those of you present here today that Catholics have far more cause to be unhappy about them than you do. Our delegates have sold us out, cynically and completely. Here is what the Reverend Colin Buchanan, an Anglican theologian, had to say on the subject. He remarked that Cranmer could have signed the agreement on the Eucharist, while his Catholic opponents could not, and that the statements about the presence of Christ in the sacraments go very much with his use of language, and the footnote explaining away transubstantiation without committing anyone to it would have made him chortle. In the interest of brevity, I will not quote chapter and verse for the next example I will give of ambiguity in the archic statements. If anyone wants chapter and verse, I'll be glad to give it to them later. I'm referring now to the agreement on the ministry. The Catholic Church teaches that the sacrament of order was instituted directly by Christ. The statement nowhere affirms this. The Catholic Church teaches that this sacrament is imparted by the laying on of hands by a bishop whose own orders were received in the same way through an uninterrupted line going back to the apostles. In his commentary upon the agreement, Dr. Julian Charlie, an evangelical theologian who was a member of the Archic Commission, remarks with considerable satisfaction that this statement does no more than describe Catholic and Anglican practice without claiming that it is the only acceptable form of church order. And I quote him now, it leaves wide open the question of whether other denominations would be obliged in any future rapprochement to take episcopy into their systems. Does it indeed? If this is true, and I am content to take Dr. Charlie's word for it, this statement certainly does not reflect the teaching of the Catholic Church. Now here is an absolutely crucial point. It is the teaching of the Catholic Church up to and including Vatican II, the teaching of Pope Paul VI and of Pope John Paul II, that a Catholic priest differs not simply in degree, but in essence from a layman. He has powers that he did not possess before he was ordained, powers that a layman does not possess. The Catholic Church teaches that an ordained priest has the power to transform bread and wine into the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ by an immaculate blessing and to absolve or retain the sins of the penitent. This teaching is nowhere affirmed in the Canterbury Statement on the Ministry. In his commentary, Dr. Charlie points out that the statement does not claim that the minister is the only person with the power to celebrate the Eucharist. He is simply the appropriate person to do so. When asked in a subsequent lecture whether this meant that if a minister were unavailable, a layman could celebrate a valid Eucharist, he replied, yes. Ladies and gentlemen, it is the clear and ir irreformable teaching of the Catholic Church that only an ordained priest can celebrate the Eucharist. I certainly do not recognize my faith in a statement which leaves open the possibility that a layman can do so. The time available to me simply does not permit me to deal with a statement on authority, but this suffers from the same defects that I have referred to in the earlier statements, that, that the infallible and irreformable teaching of the church is nowhere clearly infirm, affirmed without, however, being excluded. And so we have two interpretations of these statements. Those like Dr. Charlie from the evangelical Anglican side says, 
it doesn't say it, therefore it's not affirmed. And Bishop Clark from the Catholic side says it doesn't say it isn't, <laughs> so therefore it is affirmed, if you can follow that somewhat tortuous explanation. I'm sure that some of you are wondering how I can retain my faith in the Catholic Church when I believe that its official representatives have been guilty of so cynical a betrayal of its defined teaching. My answer is that I have no doubt whatsoever that my church is divinely guided and divinely protected and will never endorse these agreements. In 1980, I was invited to the Vatican where I discussed them with Cardinal Schaper, the prefect of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, which had been given the task of providing a theological evaluation of the agreements. He assured me that there was not the least possibility of the Vatican ever endorsing these statements. Cardinal Schaper died before the judgment of his congregation was published, but when it appeared, I was totally satisfied. It tore every shred of credibility from the agreements as adequate vehicles for the expression of Catholic teaching. Many of the points it made were worded almost identically to objections I had made years before. This has left the Catholic ecumenical establishment with very red faces and in a terrible predicament. If the Pope does not endorse these the statements, then not simply archic, but the ecumenical movement could suffer a fatal blow. I am absolutely certain that the Pope will accept the findings of the sacred congregation and reject the agreements of archic. In recent years, he has published documents on the Eucharist and the priesthood which conform perfectly to the teaching of Trent. But most Anglicans know nothing whatsoever of these. And here I think that the Anglican delegates are being less than honest. They must know very well what the Pope is publishing and stating on these subjects, and yet not a word of it appears in the Anglican newspapers, and many Anglicans now are given the impression that the archic statements represent the current official viewpoint of the Catholic Church. This is absolutely untrue. It's the statements which the Pope is making. And uh, three years ago, on Holy Thursday, he published a statement on the Eucharist, which was taken almost word for word from the Council of Trent. And the following year, he published a statement on the priesthood, which was taken almost word for word from the Council of Trent, and could almost be seen as a point-by-point -point refutation of the agreed statements. Yet, as I say, most Anglicans know nothing of this whatsoever. And I, I fear very much that when... As is certain, these agreements are rejected by the Catholic Church. There's going to be great disillusionment among many, Catholic, among many Anglicans who imagine that uh, unity was near. It is indeed true that God writes straight with crooked lines. Archic is the epitomization of false ecumenism and a danger to Christian truth. But archic may well be the instrument used by God to destroy the ecumenical heresy, to show that while unity is something we should all desire, we should not desire it at the expense of truth. God does not want a church of lukewarm pseudo-Christians who are neither hot nor cold, who accept ambiguous platitudes in place of the two-edged sword of Christian truth. I would like to conclude by making a statement which will certainly appear anecumenical and may even appear contentious, but which I consider is not simply true, but inescapably obvious. Despite our common bond of baptism, which, as I said earlier, is a far stronger bond than the differences which keep us apart, these differences are nonetheless so important and so radical 
that unity is not possible without resolving them one way or another. I submit to you that, in a whole, that on a whole range of crucially important subjects, Catholic and Anglican teaching are radically incompatible. Unity can only be achieved by one side or the other admitting that it is in the wrong and accepting the position of the other, where, in all conscience, an Anglican cannot bring himself to admit that the Eucharist is God and that he has a duty to bow down and worship it, where a Catholic cannot bring himself to admit that it is bread and only bread and not God in any way whatsoever, then Catholics and Protestants have a duty not to unite. It is better to remain divided in one's firmly held convictions than to be united in hypocrisy. I can respect a man like Ian Paisley who knows what he believes, who upholds what he believes, and who refuses to compromise on what he believes. I cannot respect a man who will compromise what he professes to believe in the interest of spurious unity. Now, Ian Paisley would not go to, would, I think he would rather die than be present at Catholic Mass. And yet, I, if I had been an Anglican when the Pope was in Liverpool, I would have been scandalized at seeing all the Anglican bishops and clerics, inclu including Bishop Shepherd, who I know is an, ev an evangelical, going and taking part in the Mass celebrated by the Pope, knowing that the host was being elevated to be worshipped. If they are true to the 39 articles, they must obviously believe that that was an act of idolatry. And yet they had, didn't have the least compunction in being present at that ceremony. That, that is something I just cannot understand. Such men are neither hot nor cold, and we know what their fate will be unless they undergo a change of temperature. I certainly include the Catholic members of Archic in this category. They are all trained theologians. And as they have signed the agreements in the way they have been framed, it means they find them acceptable in the way they have been framed. They are men who are neither hot nor cold, and the documents to which they have appended their signatures reflect this tepidity. They have accepted the religion of the world. They are welcome to it.